When you take on a direct report, it takes time to help people understand what they're expected, what your expectations are of them, what success looks like, to provide feedback. And it's oftentimes, particularly in early phases, so much easier to just do the things yourself. And so, so often we all always fall back on like, oh, well, like I need this done now. And so I'm just going to do it myself. And that may save you that time that, you know, a couple minutes or a couple hours of time at that moment. But in the long run, it only adds to your workload and your work burden because you're not, you know, you're not allowing yourself to elevate up and focus on other things because you're continuing to carry that, you know, that, that load of that you should be giving up to the humans you've entrusted with that, with that work. What's your internal success story? You know, the deep down beliefs you have about how big your life really can be. Is your internal story a big story or is it filled with fear and self-sabotage that keeps you playing small? When you make the decision to play bigger, you're also influencing everyone around you. Playing bigger requires a shift. The shift is what happens when you let go of the self-limiting beliefs that keep you from stepping into your authentic, powerful, beautiful self. It's a shift from the probabilities into the possibilities of your big, amazing life. My favorite conversations are when I get to hear how people shift into playing bigger. This podcast is your invitation to listen to others that have made the shift and also serve as a catalyst to explore the shift needed for you to play bigger. And no, I'm sitting right here cheering you on. Hey there, I'm Tracy Spear, speaker, author, coach, founder of Exceptional Leaders Lab, and head cheerleader for anyone wanting to play bigger. My guest this week, definitely playing bigger. Her name is Kyan Camus. Kyan serves as the executive director of Partner Tulsa, leading Tulsa's comprehensive community and economic development strategy, and a team of talented professionals dedicated to increasing economic opportunity for Tulsa residents. Kyan is passionate about creating long-term institutional change in how Tulsa pursues its economic and community development objectives and is committed to building a world-class and sustainable operating model that builds strong and stable long-term revenues for this work. She loves crazy ideas, I can attest to this, and tries <laughs> to encourage out-of-the-box thinking and a collaborative approach to problem-solving among the partner Tulsa's staff. Prior to this role, Cayenne served as Mayor G.T. Bynum's Chief of Economic Development. Before that, she spent six years with the Tulsa Regional Chamber in various roles in economic development and government affairs. Cayenne holds a bachelor's degree in political science from the University of Oklahoma and a master's degree in comparative public policy from the University of Edinburgh. She has completed the University of Oklahoma's Economic Development Institute as well. She and her husband, Lathan, have lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma since 2009. We'll talk about where you were before that. And they're raising their son, maybe the cutest son I've ever seen, Leith, as a proud Tulsan. So, Kyan, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to be here. And Leith is definitely the cutest Cutest little guy ever. No question. But I'm his mom. I have to say that. <laughs> well, I'm not, and I'm still saying that, but I know you hear that. Like he, yeah, he is. I can't wait to meet him. Now listen, yeah. let's 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 just start for a moment. Just tell we're gonna talk, you know, we're talking about shifts out loud and all the things, but tell us a bit about kind of you you, anything that's noteworthy, kind of where did you grow up? Because I guess I didn't realize you said you've only been here since 2009. You feel like mm -hmm. a lifelong Tulsan to me. But where did you grow up? 
I grew up in the tiny town of Okarchi, Oklahoma, known for Aishin's fried chicken. That's the only reason anybody knows where Okarchi is. It's just 45 minutes out of Oklahoma City, but it's a small rural farming community. I grew up on a 26 acres. My parents initially owned a trucking company, and then my they sold that business, and my dad made rotary harrows farm equipment. My dad designed and he and my mom built and sold this piece of farm equipment. So my parents were small business owners most of of my childhood. But yeah, grew up in Okarchi, graduated from Okarchi. Yeah, was just a teeny tiny little girl from from rural Oklahoma. Now I've heard of Okarchi. I've driven by Okarchi, but I've never met anybody from Okarchi. So (laughs) and I and I not that many of us. (laughs) <laughs> all, all six of you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I knew that you grew up on a farm and I, and, and I know that because we've talked about it, but also I think you're one of the hardest working people I know. So does that yeah. work ethic come from that upbringing? Yeah. I think, you know, my, I mentioned my parents are small business owners and I just all three, I'm, I'm the middle child. So I have an older sister and a younger sister and all three of us just, we, we, we grew up, well, my parents, we, we lived on 26 acres and we had Bermuda grass. My parents would bale the, the Bermuda grass and every summer when they would cut it, we were responsible for helping pick up the bale, the bales and bring it in. And I am a fairly thin human. I was much thinner when I was younger. So that was, I mean, you start from a small age bucking bales. You kind of get used to having to nothing is tree. If you want, if you want new clothes, if you want new shoes, you need to go out and buck some bales. So that was, I mean, I think that was just part of how we were, we were raised. I think I remember my first job, my first real job was was after my parents had sold their two small businesses. My mom was managing the two loved country stores in Kingfisher, which is just to the north of of Okarchi. And I would mow the lawns at the two loved country stores for my mom. And I think I made like 40 bucks if I mowed both of them, which felt like a pretty good deal for us. I think it was probably 13 when I was doing that. And then when I was 15, I know I wasn't 16 yet. My mom's best friend worked for the rural electric cooperative and she got me a job filing with like a card that had the information for everybody's meter on them, like paper cards. This was before everything went digital. So I started working for the electric cooperative when I was 15 and then worked for the electric cooperative all throughout high school and college. I, I dispatched on nights and weekends and during storms a, a lot of times. And then I had, I had multiple other jobs. I was like always working in high school. So I just came from this background of just you, you always had a job. It was always the expectation. You never stopped working. You were just always or doing things. My other job was I worked at the Grain Elevator. I worked <laughs> at Wheeler Brothers Co-op. I did that during summers, I think two or three summers at the end of high school and beginning of college. And it was a great job because you like an intense month of of work where you really worked like 18 hour days and you were on overtime by day two or day three. But you just were, I mean, you you were working nonstop. And I'm a, I know I can grade grain. So if you gave me a sample of wheat and you needed to know if there was rye or joint grass or cheap in said wheat, I could help you identify those, those products. This so, is my, it's my future career plans is really, I'm going to, I'm going to go back to mowing lawns, grading grain and dispatching at the electric cooperative. 
Oh my God, that is hilarious. I I love that. I actually read meters at the electric yeah. shop in Norman. I don't think I've ever <laughs> even told that. I, I have a tendency to tell the same stories over and over, but I don't think I've tell, told most people that. But I would jump the fences and read those meters and put yeah. them on cards that you're talking yeah. So <laughs> you know what the cards look like. I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's, it, I'm not going to lie. This is the first time I've ever gotten to tell that little bit of knowledge because somebody yes. else on the other side was talking about it. So, <laughs> so three girls. So do mom and dad, they're on a farm. They're like, you know, and, and this is going to be funny, but not funny. Like, I mean, are they like, you know, three girls? I mean, I mean no, no boys. And yet you worked harder than probably you know, the Any- boys. Yeah, any boy. Yeah, I mean, I think my, I don't think they ever miss not having boys because they never, I guess they always had like the labor that you would usually expect from having, from having boys. My, my mom used to always joke that like not even the dogs were boys, like all the dogs were girls as well. So my dad was just surrounded by a house of women. Well, so we, so as you know, we do a lot. We talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion in these podcasts. And the stereotype that I just put forth, I will just apologize to the audience now. <laughs> but but back in that day, in that time, right? Like there there was probably a little bit of you know thought around who's going to be taking care of the farm. Or, now where yeah. are they now? Well, I mean, I would. But both my parents, my so my dad is actually my my dad. He's having health issues, so he's staying, he's b- bouncing back and forth between my sisters and I, but my mom still lives in Kingfisher, and Kingfisher. she's married to my stepdad, who still farms, and, you know, I think, actually, like, in, in most farming communities, it's like an all-hands-on-deck, like, you're, particularly during harvest, you, there's no option, like, if you're not out on the combine, you're driving the truck, or you're, you're at home, like, making, making food for all of the farmhands so that they can go from kind of sun up to sundown. So there's really like, there's not a, there's not a lot of differentiation between, you know, who, who works and who doesn't work. The thing it's just, I don't know, it's one of, I'm, I'm, I've always been very proud about coming from a more rural background. And I think when most people meet me or see me, they would never think that I came from a small town. They would never think that, you know, I had, that I had lived out in the country and that I worked at the grain elevator and the, and the electric cooperative. And, but it, it's such a fundamental part of, of who I am. And I think, I don't know, I think people who come from, from rural America have a, they have a lot of grit is kind of an overused word sometimes, but they just have a lot of, of grit and understanding about just, it's not even, it's not an option. It's not a question. It's just what you do and, and who you are. So I just did my first live TED talk and it's called a TEDx talk and it's called Trailer Park mm-hmm. University. Mm-hmm. And there's a piece in there where I'm talking about how do you get grit if you don't grow up with in those circumstances? And so I think you and I now, I, as I'm listening to you share the just so, gra- so grateful that I had that because yeah. I don't know how you could get grit without it, right? Yeah. And I, Lathan and I, my husband and I talk about this. Our son is obviously immensely lucky. He's, he, he's, growing up in much different circumstances than than we both did. And he, my husband grew up in a much smaller town in rural Oklahoma called Freedom, Oklahoma. Kingfisher is about population 12, o- Okarchi Kingfisher, Okarchi is 1,200, Kingfisher is about 5,000 people. Freedom, I think, may be maxed out at about 200 people right now, maybe 150. So, you know, we we think all the time about, you know, how how do we make sure that 
you know, our son who is immensely lucky, he's very loved, incredibly loved, but he, you know, he does not have the same, he's not growing up in the same circumstances that we did. How do we make sure that we impart the same type of values that, you know, we were so lucky to, to impart? I'm not that it, I wouldn't say it. there were some really hard times. I too grew up in a, you know, I lived in a trailer house on the, on those 26 acres. Not fun growing up oftentimes, you know, under kind of in the struggle of financial issues, but it's, we think a lot about how do we make sure that our son, you know, has the same type of desire to, you know, get out and work and contribute and recognize that you have to, you have to put some sweat equity into the things that you want to achieve. Those Pokemon cards just don't show up at the house <laughs> without bucking a few bales. That's what I'm going to skipping by new. You want a new pack of Pokemon cards, you're going to have to get out there and somehow form a hay bale and then bucket into the garage. <laughs> I think bucking bales is like the your memoir. I feel a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> Our next staff retreat, rather than folding fit- the fitted sheets, we're going to make staff buck hay bales. I love it. I love so so let's I wanted to comment on that because the audience is like, what are they talking about? Folding fitted sheets. <laughs> We were in a retreat together recently, and I have the good fortune of being your business partner as well. And and you have this amazing team that you're leading. And it's, you know, I watch the way you move about that, your organization and what you're creating. And I'm sitting here listening to you talk about the community that you grew up in and how everybody has a job. And one of my questions today I was thinking about was going to be, where does that ability to create connection come from? And I'm wondering, is, the, is that kind of from the, you know, the days of bugging? Was it Bucky? Was <laughs> yeah, it was Bucky Bales? I wish Bales. I could like draw a, a direct, I may have to think about this. Maybe I'll okay. be able to draw a, a direct tie to Bucking Bales. But I do, you know, I... I try really hard to understand why people do what they do, who they are, what drives how they think. I think a lot of that is because of some of the people in in my life who I try to understand and figure out their motive. And so when I'm managing a team, I'm always trying to think through what is it that drives this person? What is it that makes them happy? You know, how, why are they good at what they do? And how can I, how can I help them, you know, be their, be their most fullest version of themselves. And it's, it's not a perfect process, but I, I really love getting to work alongside people who are not afraid to tell me when I'm wrong. And as you have seen, I have an entire team who are, are never afraid to tell me when I'm wrong or when they disagree with me or when they might have a recommendation for how we might do something better, which I, you know, I absolutely love, and it's not happenstance. It takes it takes a whole lot of work and a whole lot of ability to be comfortable with, you know, knowing that you're working alongside others, and and there's sometimes this. It's not friction, but there's just this. There's always this tension that you have to manage as you're trying to form and maintain really truly dynamic teams. Yeah. And that's it. You, you walk that tension beautifully because I think people, you're still in charge for sure. 
they know that. And yet you're also incredibly approachable. Those, I just want to say this to you as if nobody's listening, but I mean, that's rare. And, and what I am experiencing of you, I knew you would be like that, but it's even better than I thought it would be. Like there's, there's times <laughs> oh, I catch, no, I, there's times I catch myself just kind of watching how you're navigating it and thinking, well played, you thank know? You. So thank you. Yeah, your team's a lot of fun. It's helpful when you have awesome people. Yeah. So that doesn't happen by accident that, you know, those people show up and feel that way. You said, I have good people. So anyway, I know this is not a love fest for, for you, Cayenne, but yet I just, I also <laughs> want you to hear, you know, job well done. So let, let's go back for a little bit. Your, your mowing yards, your bailing, your bucking bales, okay. your- As a all, waitress for a while. What Of all of those jobs you've said and the co-op, what, what's been the hardest job you've ever had? I would say it's hard to, because they were all so different. I mean, working, working at the grain elevator, you're working pretty crushing hours, but it's not immensely difficult work. Like I was not the human out in the grain bin who had to like scoop the grain, like when the elevators got clogged up so that like the guys did that. There was gender, clear gender differentiation between those jobs. Thank goodness, right? (laughs) Yeah, I did not want to be the grain super, but it was just, yeah, it's, you have to really, and you have to commit to being able to work consistently, you know, 18, 20 hour days, because once you can start cutting wheat, you have to get the wheat in because you don't, if it rains, then you have to pause and the quality of the wheat goes down. And so you just, it's really, I, it maybe it gave me, it built up my perseverance to be in a job where sometimes you just have to, you have to work really hard and push yourself through it. And hopefully on the other end, you you get to have a little bit of a break. Did you always know you were going to go to the University of Oklahoma? And did you always know it was going to be public policy? Yeah. So I I only applied to OU when I went to when I graduated from McCarchy and I went into OU knowing that I was was going to be a political science major and and never changed my major. And part of me like, you know, I I look back, Okarchi was a very small school. I didn't even though I, you know, had high ACT scores, I you know, I was a valedictorian. I never, I didn't think bigger than OU. And I I am so glad that I am a graduate of the University of Oklahoma. And I hope Lee will consider going to, to OU. But it was the only school that I applied to. But luckily, I, I loved it. And I had a great experience there. And I just, I think there was just always something about me that knew that I wanted to be in some form of public service. I didn't know what that might look like. I, I certainly didn't didn't think it would be economic development. I didn't even think that, you know, economic development was a career, but I knew I always wanted to be in some form of public service. Interesting. I was a public administration major at OU. Yeah. And thought that I was going to be mayor of a small town. That was, <laughs> was like, <laughs> you know, everyone's like, oh, do you want to help people? I'm, no, I just want to be mayor of a small town. Yeah. Freedom. You could move to freedom if you okay. wanted to. They, yeah. Yeah. They're, yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know who's running, who I would have to run against, but I would have... <laughs> not many. There's not many people that. <laughs> so tell me about, so the University of Edinburgh, tell me about that. What, what I like, I don't think I even understood that. Tell me more about yeah. that. Yeah. So I, when I was at OU, I applied for a scholarship through Rotary International and got the scholarship and it was a, you had to, when you applied, you, you essentially told them that you would be, you chose five schools and they could... You couldn't have more than two schools on one continent and you could go to school anywhere where there was a Rotary Club. And then they assigned you to a country 
And then you were responsible for getting into that university. The whole goal of the scholarship program was to build kind of peace and goodwill. Key principle of Rotary International. So I applied and was assigned to the to Edinburgh and and ultimately kind of followed up on my political science background and and chose public policy. And my husband now we had we we started dating my senior year of high school and dated all the way through college. We got married and then a week and a half later moved to to Scotland. And I still say I mean it's one of the best experiences of my life. You know I. And I was a small town girl. I hadn't really, I'd never, never gone and lived internationally, certainly never had dreamt that I would have the chance to go to school internationally, certainly live. So it was really for me just a transformational opportunity to get to see you know, another, another part of the world, just a small town girl from, from Okarchi. Oh my gosh. Do you think that you'll ever live abroad again? We at Lathan and I, we've joked that we don't think if we ever moved, we don't envision ourselves moving within the U.S. That we would move, we would just move back to Edinburgh. We like we love it so much. It's such a beautiful city. It's a whole lot less hot than it is yeah. in in Oklahoma in the summertime. So, yeah. But I don't, I don't, I don't foresee us moving at least at this point. It's it's interesting how many people, and I I think that it was HGTV, but how many people I know that are like. I'm just going to go live there in the summer or, or like, I, I don't know. Like I, that was not, I wasn't hearing that yeah, until yeah. house hunters international or whatever started. So no, I think I'll, I think I'll do a stint overseas for an extended period of time. I don't think I could ever yeah. move there. I mean, I love to go on vacation, but there's something alluring. I think about just being in a community for all the seasons, yeah. you know, at, at least maybe once. So yeah. Yeah. I would agree. So, so we're, you know, the name of the podcast is Shift Out Loud. What are some of the shifts that happened for you that as you moved about the world? So you've given us a few shifts already. So shift us back from Scotland back to the States. So you're, did, did you, were you tempted to stay in Scotland at all? Or did you know the minute that program was over, you were done? You know, I think at the time I knew I wanted to come back. Maybe I was young. I was homesick. And we had, we, you know, all our families in Oklahoma, so we knew we wanted to come back. And we ended up landing, landing in Tulsa because we, you know, we'd been six, seven time zones away from our family and we didn't want to live in Oklahoma City where we would be so close to them. We're like, we have, we've had too much space from you and we want to be closer, but we don't want to be that close. So we landed, you know, we landed in, in Tulsa. My husband actually got a job for the city of Tulsa. He still works here. And I actually, at the time, it was 2009 when we moved back. But the middle that, you know, the height of, of the Great Recession in Oklahoma. And I, you know, I'd graduated. I spoke at my college graduation from OU. You know, I went to scholarship with a master's degree and I come back in the midst of this recession and I couldn't get a job. I, I remember I watched a whole lot of episodes of the Vegas. Do you remember that show? Uh, I don't. So what's in, with, I'm trying. It was like well, I was working. I'm sure. And you were working. I was not. I watched every episode. <laughs> it's set in Vegas in a casino. But yeah, I couldn't. I could not get a job. And it was. It was so. You, know, you go from being this outstanding student, and you're. You know, everybody thinks you're. You're going to do phenomenal things, and you get back, and bam, the reality just hit you in the face. And I think it took me three four months to get a job. And I ultimately ended up taking a job with the city of Owasso 
making twelve fifty an hour, and I it was an admin assistant position, which was tough to. It was definitely hard to swallow after having been such an outstanding student. And I will say, I'm so I'm so great friends with all of the humans I worked with at the city of Owasso, including one of my dear friends who's also a fellow economic developer, Chelsea Levo Fury. And you know, I think I even though I was I was just an admin assistant answering phones, I was able to shift it into a policy role. I I served really as the council secretary and took minutes and was able to kind of help start drafting some ordinances. And you know, it, for me it really reminded me of like, sometimes you just have to be persistent. Like you've got to buck the bail, I guess, if we can go back to to that analogy. But it was definitely, I think, really hard for me to start start my career at $12.50 an hour. It was really, really tough. Oh my, especially coming off of the educational experience that you had Yeah, I can imagine you probably thought, well, I'll be running something soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, I was either, you know, way overqualified for for some for for jobs or just barely underqualified. And and luckily Owasso took a took a major risk on me and and gave me a job. And, you know, I from there I went to the to the chamber and started in government affairs and I had a chance to mentor under you had great people like Susan Harris, who I don't know if you know, she's retired now, but it led their health policy and education policy efforts. And Matt Pavarnik, who was then COO of the chamber, who I'm just a huge fan of, he's in Topeka now. You know, people who really, I think, saw a lot of opportunity in me and gave me a lot of space to do big things. And and I think in a lot of ways, that like people's willingness to invest in me and to give me a chance. It's something that stuck with me. And I try to, when I think about our younger team members, try to make sure that we're creating opportunities like that for them, that we're really giving them the space to, you know, move up from the 1250 an hour because we are not paying anybody 1250 an hour. I should say that, but move up from that entry level position and prove themselves and, and become, you know, as big of a part of this organization as they would like to be. Listen, that, you know, where you are now. So there's a, there's a few things in between, but everything it feels like, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but everything that you've done to get you in the seat that you're in now, it just it seems like this is the logical place for you based on kind of how your career has moved. Is that fair to say? Or does this feel like a complete departure of what you thought you were going to do? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if I'm honest. I don't know if I had like a, path in my head I think maybe to just go back to like that work ethic that I've always had I just I've always been committed to doing good work and luckily it wasn't happenstance I know there was like some thought and plan to it but I I was never one of those people who charted out a career pathway and said they were going to be here and I think I've mentioned this to you I sometimes like one of the things I struggle with particularly now that I'm at this point in my career I oftentimes still like have this like image of myself in my head where I am still this, you know, small town girl from Okarchi and, and I, I, I fail to realize or I'll be caught off guard and, and realize that no, I'm actually, you're a lot, quite a lot more than that small town girl from Okarchi. And particularly as I think about like my position of influence and the, the words I use or the things I say or the opportunities that I have. I try to make sure that I don't, I am 
grateful for or acknowledge the fact that my position comes with a you know healthy level of power and access. Mm. And when you're in, you know, kind of some of those meetings and you're having that moment like, I'm from Lokarchi. Hey, wait a minute. I'm actually <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> reconciling that. We've all been there. I, I did a podcast with Jessica Lobetz and uh-huh. we had this. Yes, who bit. I used to work with. Yes. Yes, that's right. Oh, that's right. You did. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And we were having that that conversation about how, you know, there's always imposter, oftentimes there's imposter syndrome at play. And in that, like, you know, I don't, people say, well, do you ever get over it? And I'll say, not me. I never have, but, but it's different. Like you you have to integrate where you are and then you kind of get comfortable and then you get a promotion and then you have it again. Like, Mm -hmm. so you, you do have moments where you're like, okay, I, I, I've got this. And then those next moments, which are like, I'm not sure I got this. Yeah. But the questions now, this is leading to the question. So you're a doer. You're somebody that has been, you know, really, you know, I would say probably working side by side with everybody on your team for sure in the community. Has there ever a time where it's been hard for you or what is, I guess the, the question is, what's the biggest challenge in moving from being the doer to being the leader? Yeah, it's like a daily challenge because, you know, I think this is one of the things that that any person who shifts into a leader role should struggle with. I think most people do struggle with it, with it. But how do you, you oftentimes you get to the point of being elevated to a leadership position because you've been a good individual contributor. You've been technically very good. And so you, you, you shift up higher and higher. And I think for me, I, I, I love getting to do the things and I know that I'm good at the technical component of of my job, but it's definitely when I, I now am surrounded by a team of just phenomenal people who in many ways are so much smarter than I am. And I think in particular about one of my team members, Michelle Barnett, who she's our SVP of economic development. She and I've talked about this. So that's why I told Phil cake talking about on this podcast is she, she essentially took over the work that I had previously done. And I know when I first shifted into this role, she really struggled when people just, they just kept coming to me right. because they thought, you know, okay, I remember Cayenne is doing this and I had a hard time. I felt bad, not, you know, not responding to their requests. And really I was doing a disservice to my, to Michelle when I didn't just say, no, you know, Michelle is a phenomenal individual. She is great at what she does. This is Michelle's job. Yes. And so I think that, and that's really hard, particularly for when you're when you still have oversight of an area of work that you used to do that you are functionally very good at. And I would say the other thing that's like that I struggle with the most, like as I've made a shift from being a doer to a leader, is I when I get stressed out or when I'm dealing with a big problem. It's very comforting to me to be in the weeds because I can control the weeds. Like I can control the tasks and I can, I can knock out a 10 page memo. And those are things that I can all, you know, I have the start and end and I can, I can control them, but it's an avoidant strategy. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) For tackling and dealing with some of the broader, you know, more 
nebulous aspects of being a leader, you know, whether that's managing personal dynamics or, you know, dealing with kind of political strategy. And it's just, I don't, I think I will always struggle with it. And I, I feel like I'm constantly trying to check myself. And one of the things, as you know, that I, and we've already talked about this, that I try to do is I try to make sure that the team knows that they can be honest with me. And, you know, I tell them, if I'm driving you crazy, if I'm doing something, please just say, Cayenne, stop doing it. Stop doing that. Go away. <laughs> do your own job. <laughs> and they do, don't they? they do. Yes, yeah. they do. <laughs> well, you give them permission to have that kind of candor yeah. with you. A lot of leaders surround themselves intentionally or unintentionally with people that that aren't willing to have those conversations. Yeah. And I think that's that's what I was trying to say a little bit early about earlier about you, where you are in your career that you have in, you know, and I think it's been intentional. Some have been an amazing, probably kind of coincidence, but mm-hmm. I, I think that, you know, in doing that, that's going to continue to elevate you. And I would offer that, you know, that shift, if you will, from gosh, you know, bucking bales to, oh man, I, I can't do that anymore, but I have incredibly competent people. And if mm-hmm. I go out and do that, I'm taking someone else's job. If yeah. I go out and do that, the message I'm sending is, I don't think you can do it as good as I, I don't can. trust you. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So those are, those are unintended consequences for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think too, oftentimes leaders and I've, cause I've talked about this with people who are particularly new managers you know, when you, when you take on a direct report, it takes time to help people understand what they're expected, what your expectations are of them, what success looks like to provide feedback. And it's oftentimes, particularly in early phases, so much easier to just do the things yourself. And so, so often we all always fall back on like, oh, well, like I need this done now. And so I'm just going to do it myself. And that may save you that time that, you know, a couple minutes or a couple hours of time at that moment. But in the long run, it only adds to your workload and your work burden because you're not, you know, you're not allowing yourself to elevate up and focus on other things because you're continuing to carry that, you know, that that load of that you should be giving up to the humans you've entrusted with that with that work. No question. And the math on that one hour now times if that's every week, times fifty two weeks. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. You you're that's losing a whole it. Lot. Yeah, you're losing a week away. Yeah. So the other thing I've experienced with you is you have this really giddy enthusiasm. And I th- I think it's about life in general, but you definitely bring that to the workplace. Have you has that always been who you are, or are you just that intentional in leading this team that you're leading now? I'm trying to trying to think. You know, I remember and I remember when I was when I started my career at the chamber, you know, Matt Pavarnik was always great about building a culture that tried to bring people together and that valued fun in the workplace. And so if I'm like, I've never thought back on this before, but I would maybe say that I think seeing somebody like Matt really value that was a big part of it. And then when I think I came over, when I came from the chamber to the city and was trying to build up a team that was excited about the work that they do. You know, I first came over to the city. I I would tell the team that they had this, when we first got here, a starvation mentality, you know, that 
oftentimes when you work in city government, you're used to not having any resources. You're used to the perpetual budget cuts. You're used to the, you know, the, the changes in political regimes. And that I think really has an impact on the, the dynamics of a team and what they think is possible and not possible. And, and I really felt that with the team when I came over to the city and wanted to find ways to help them find the joy and potential in their work again. I, I had to tell them we can't stop whirling away money every single year just because we just because we think that, you know, next year there might be massive budget cuts. Like we've we have to invest in ourselves. We have to invest in the work that we do. And part of that like investment was, you know, finding the financial resources, but a part of it was also like just finding the the joy in what we do. And I think one of the first things I don't even, I don't even remember where the Genesis was, but I started the, I call them crazy idea competitions. I think we've talked about this where we would tell the staff, we'd give them a prompt, like you have a million dollars to spend. What would you spend your million dollars on? And everybody would have to, they would have to put together, they were encouraged to put together a PowerPoint presentation with as many like clip arts and gifts and like automations and said PowerPoint presentation and then present their crazy idea to the entire team. And then we, I think the first few times we had like a celebrity judge panel to come in and it was just such a fun way to help people think about, you know, what are the possibilities in their job? So that was a long winded way to say, I think part of it is just who I am, but part of it was a deliberate response, has been a deliberate response to, you know, wanting to break the mold of maybe what it looks like to be a public sector employee or and certainly what it looks like to be an employee in in this department when I first came over to the city. The crazy ideas, I mean, I think that's brilliant. I hope everybody listening considers something like that because what yeah. you're inviting people to do is think without limits. Yeah. You're right. That's a visioning exercise. That's a, you know, some people are going to call it manifestation, whatever you're going to call it. But <laughs> I think that, you know, we do feel that we are so limited in what we can influence. Like, well, they'll never mm-hmm. listen to me or what. Mm-hmm. And when, so when someone like you that's running the organization says, I want to hear every crazy idea you have, yeah. formalize it and let's have some fun and celebrate it. Yeah. I don't think there's any accident that your team is so freaking creative. Those are those are some of the things. So what, are there any other ideas we can steal from you that, you all, <laughs> that you're I'm trying doing? to, you know, I am a big believer. It's not an idea, but I am just a big believer in the, in the small things. Like I, obviously, you know, pay and policies and a good culture are fundamentally important to having an organization that people want to come work for and stay working at. But I think it's just like, you know, it's the, it's the little things like it's bringing in donuts randomly or, you know, dropping by to, you know, if he knew somebody ran a race the last weekend and asking them how it went. I think building that sense of family, you know, we recently, we recently were with the team and the, and they were communicating back to me how important it is for you know them as this organization grows that we maintain this sense of family, this group of people who cares about each other and enjoys being with each other. And, you know, we do a lot of hard work. And I might say not hard work, like, you know, manual labor, but just it's, 
tough topics and things that are difficult to achieve and they take a long time. And oftentimes, you know, we do a ton of work for years in the background and then we're not the ones who are, you know, out in front of the podium. We know that's going to happen. It's other people who who get to take the the credit for things. So I think it's important for for us as a staff to just really take deliberate action to to build that sense of culture. But it's it's really oftentimes those small things that make the most impact. That reminds me. I'm gonna get something. You see you see where this is? <laughs> yes. wow. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where podcasts are, are tough. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> nobody can see this. We're we're laughing. I just got up and went behind me because I and I'm holding up a trophy that looks like the Olympic torch. Like a, you know, and it says <laughs> it, it says that Tracy Spears, honorary SLT member, fanning the flames of optimism and drive. Now, I'm sharing this with you as an example of Cheyenne's creativity and how she can create community, even with a consultant. That I mean, I feel like I'm on the team. I feel like I'm part of the you team. You are on the team. I'm so grateful. And I watched that. So just to give everyone a little bit more context. So you take your senior leadership team offsite once a quarter, mm-hmm. and you all roll your sleeves up and talk about tough things. And mm-hmm. I've been fortunate to be part of some of those conversations. And so the last time that we did that, we went to, you You have a little weekend place, by the way, mm-hmm. that is for VRBO. Yeah. We'll talk about yeah. that. In a yeah. yeah. But I watched you give out every person around the table, like you you had to put so much thought into the idea that everybody got a trophy and all of our trophies were different. Nothing, none of them look the same, but uh-huh. they were so specific to each person. And I left there. I'm still talking about it. It's sitting <laughs> here. I, I talked about it every day, probably since just to say what an amazing example that was of people feeling seen. And yeah. and I think the other piece I loved is I think you were more excited to give it this. I'm so excited. <laughs> Because they'd come in the mail like a week before and I was like, I am bad at keeping secrets and I wanted to tell them so bad, but okay. I didn't. <laughs> That's good to know. So, and yesterday I, I left the meeting and I thought, I bet you wanted to throat punch me when I was like, no, Cayenne. I like totally acted like the boss and said, we're <laughs> no, not ready no, to give that, give that prize yet. But tell everybody <laughs> what were the two prizes that you gave yesterday? And if you oh, feel like it, tell them what the contest yeah. was. Yeah, yeah. So we we did these two exercises. One, because we really were trying to help make sure we brought, we brought on a number of new team members. We had one brand new team member who's just moved from Atlanta to Tulsa to work with our finance and real estate team. We wanted to help, you know, create an opportunity for people to explain, you know, what it is that they do. But we asked them to explain what their teams do in the context of the plot line of a movie or a TV show. Turned out to be amazing. They did a oh. phenomenal job, which I had no doubt that they would. The winning team explained what they do in the plot line of Arrested Development. And they they received as a gift a unicorn lightsaber. <laughs> and then the other one was team members had to, they had to, I'm trying to remember. They had to draw. They, they had, had to, to yes, yeah. they, they had to draw what each of the other team we, each of the other individuals on their team did that, that right, but they had so, to use a different division. Yeah. So you had, they had to choose another team that they work with and they had to depict what they believe that team does on a day to day basis by drawing nothing but pictures <laughs> yeah, on a piece yeah. of paper. Yeah. And then the said, 
said team had to try to decipher what they were saying. <laughs> so that team received a also a unicorn like if you're familiar with like briar horses, like a, a unicorn, a toy unicorn horse. And and we the unicorn is the mat we've decided is the mascot for our team because we talk a lot about we use a tool called tax increment finance district, tip district. It's a way of helping support support development, but we joke everybody thinks they're their magic money trees. And we've, we've adapted the phrase of Tiffy, the magic unicorn and Tiffy is this magic unicorn who just runs through the fields of Tulsa and solves all of the economic development problems. So I'm actually staring at a sheet of unicorn tattoos that Casey bought for each of one of our team members bought for everybody on the team. He, I don't know where he found them, but he found these unicorn tattoos and then they all put them on each other for a board meeting. A board meeting one time. This is the kind of shenanigans that that this team has. But it's so it was, I, was it under their shirt sleeve and nobody else saw it, but everybody yeah. knew. It was there? Well, so Michelle, this is for a board retreat last year. Actually, Michelle had this giant unicorn tattoo, and then like kind of a thin white shirt on, so you could see this giant unicorn. We all knew what it was, and I don't think the board knew what it was, but. It's those types of points of bonding that I think really make this team unique and special and why we, even when we know we're going to have to go through some tough things on any given day, we we wake up and we know like, okay, at least I get to do it alongside this team. And I know I'm probably going to laugh and maybe laugh through the tears while I'm doing it. I think great leaders have the ability to bring levity to those tough situations I've watched you do it. I I know I'll continue to watch you do it. And <laughs> I think I don't th- I think it's so intentional. Like that that doesn't happen unless the leader says my people are important. I want the culture is important. I value mm-hmm. everybody's experience. And so listen, sister, a-, a plus from the seat that I'm in to get to watch you. you. I'm curious before I let you go, what's the next shift for you? So You've shifted into this amazing community leader here in Tulsa. I know people are trying to send you into the political realm of, uh, you know, and you're like, no, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, don't tell no. my, don't tell my husband that. You know, I think for me, it it is truly continuing. We already talked about shifting into, you know, from being a doer into a leader, and and I think it's a continuation of that shift because I I think I'm still very much incomplete in that sense. I'm really trying to push myself this year on thinking through, you know, how do I, how do I empower my leaders and per, my senior vice presidents here and the members of our senior leadership team to do their job in the best way that they can? And how do I think about what does that mean for what I do? Because it is, it's a little bit scary when you, when you're trying to make a shift like that you're and you're really trying to commit to it. Because you 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 have to commit to shedding all those things that you were doing, and you're like, well, crap. Yeah. What do I do? What do, what am I supposed to do now? So I I think I'm still kind of grappling with that and trying to make sure that I'm I'm living up to those expectations. And it's really easy, particularly in this line of business, when we have so much to do and there's so many fires to put out. It's really easy to drop back down into that that doer mode. And then I would say the other one is just, you know, I'm a, I'm a mom. I have a son who's, you know, at least six in October and 
It's my 15-year anniversary with my husband, Lathan, in August, and we'll have been together for 20 years in December. So I'm trying also to spend the past, you know, COVID was, I think, really hard for, for all working families and just incredibly, just a lot to take take on from a, a work-life balance perspective. And my hope is that you know, as I do a better job of really empowering my leaders and think through where do I spend my time, that I have the opportunity to reevaluate, making sure that I'm giving enough time to myself, to my husband, and to my son. Well, I, I'm glad that that's on your list because I do think you're one of the hardest working people I know, and I want you to be around for a long time, and I don't Me want too. you to... Yeah, I don't want you to burn out. We need more cayenne for sure. You, listen, you, you, your fingerprints are all over this city, whether people know it or not, and your team's doing an amazing work. So as somebody that's a lifelong Tulson, I'm just going to say a big thank you. So Thanks. I appreciate it. All right, friend, listen, how can people find you if they want to connect with you? Oh, my, I'm on LinkedIn. You can always shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Email is always best for me. I unfortunately have a super unhealthy relationship with my email, but that means that I'm very, very responsive. So, and, and my email address is on our website. So. Sounds good. All right, friend, listen, thanks for making a little bit of time. I appreciate you so much. Can't wait to see what's next for you. Thank you, Tracy. If you're still here, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, rate and review, and then tell all your friends. I want to know what inspired you, what your big takeaways were, and I'm curious, what will you go do because of what you heard today? How will you shift out loud? Let's do it again soon.